Live Creative Now, episode 121. Welcome to Live Creative Now with Melissa Dinwiddie, a weekly podcast to inspire you to create your art and share your work, because that's how you will change the world. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, passion pluralite artist, happiness catalyst, and creativity instigator, and author of The Creative Sandbox Way, which you can find at an Amazon near you, here to address all your questions about living a full-color creative life. Whether you think of yourself as not artistic, not creative, which is a lie, or you think of yourself as an artist of any kind, or anything in between. No matter how you define yourself, feeding your creative hungers makes you feel more alive. It's how you change your life. And guess what? It's how you change the world because that is how it works. Change your own life and the world changes. Now, before we get started with today's episode, I want you to imagine yourself in a beautiful, serene setting with a big work table for whatever your creative work is. Imagine yourself there, beautiful, serene setting, big work table with lots of light. You're in this beautiful setting. There are six or eight or nine, maybe other kindred spirits who you really enjoy. They're all there with you at their own spaces in the same room. And all of you are working on your own creative projects in companionable silence. And we've all just finished a delicious meal. And we've just had this really fun, creative catalyzing session where we laughed like crazy. And we got out of our heads and into our bodies and dispersed the gremlins. We sent the gremlins off to get pedicures. (laughs) And we're all smiling. And all you can hear in the room is the sounds of creativity in action. Maybe paintbrushes swishing in water jars. Maybe pencils scratching on paper. Maybe some fingers tapping away on keyboards. The sounds of creativity in action. And you don't have to worry about getting tempted away into a juicy conversation because our workroom, the incubator room, is set to silence, creative silence, the sounds of creativity. So everyone can focus on our creative work. That is the incubator at my Create and Incubate retreat. And in between, in between those creative action zones in our incubator room at our meals and outside our incubator workroom, we laugh and we talk and we play games, but inside the incubator, our workroom, the energy buzzes with this group creativity. It's amazing. Everybody is working on their own creative thing. And all you hear is the sounds of creativity, which sends your own creativity, like ramps it up. It's amazing. And you are invited 
it's coming up September 13th through 17th. It's right around the corner, Wednesday through Sunday. It's an intimate group. This is not a big conference. There are eight people right now, and I am capping it at 10 max. So I have space for up to two more, maximum up to two more. So if this speaks to you, reserve your spot right now before someone else does at create and incubate retreat.com. That's create and incubate retreat.com. Maximum of 10 people. And one of them is me. (laughs) So you get to spend five days with me and a handful of other really amazing, special, generous, warm hearted creatives, many of whom have been to every single one of these create and incubate retreats with me. This is number five. They're really sweet. If it speaks to you, if it's got your name on it, I really look forward to seeing you next month. And with that, now on with today's episode. Last week, I shared a story from my very sad week at Jazz Camp West. And part of that story involved my really intense feelings of shame and embarrassment when I screwed up a performance. And, you know, we've all had an experience like that. Even if you've never performed on stage, if you're a creator, you have certainly created something that didn't come out the way you wanted. That is a guarantee. And that feeling, it's the worst, right? And the bigger the project, the more expectations you load on the outcome, oh man, the worse the feeling. So back when my main gig, when the my main business was as a ketubah artist making Jewish marriage contracts, when I was a full-time freelance artist and designer working on commission for clients, my entire self-worth was pretty much wrapped up in the excellence of whatever piece I was working on at the time. Really, you know, impressing people with what I created. And because those pieces that I made for my clients might take me dozens of hours or even hundreds of hours in some cases to complete, by the time I was done with them, it was really hard for me to see them objectively. It really, like, I kind of got blind to them. I couldn't see them at all, really. I couldn't tell if they were good or bad or mediocre. I just couldn't tell. If you've ever spent a long time working on something, you know what I'm talking about. And even though the client saw progress sketches and they had to approve a sketch before I went on to do the final artwork, I never knew what they were going to think when they came to finish to pick up the finished piece. I mean, the sketch they saw was a pencil sketch and the finished piece had color and, you know, it, 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 it's often things would, would shift around a little bit between the sketch and the finished piece. And I just, I never knew if they were going to like it or totally hate it. And 
by the time I, well, in the early days, it was always local clients, but then I started getting more and more uh, long distance clients. And then it was almost all long distance clients. So I'd be shipping pieces off into you know, <laughs> sending it off across the country or overseas. And so it was really stressful. You know, I didn't know when they unwrapped the package, what they were going to think about it. Super, super stressful. And then there was the great CD disaster of 2009. Oh my God. So I had started singing in 2005. I started studying jazz, vocal, vocal jazz, solo singing. And I'd started gigging, doing, you know, singing on stage publicly for audiences about a year after that. And in 2007, I got this opportunity to sing live on KZSU Stanford Radio. And that gig was recorded. So, I mean, I got a, you know, it was, it was radio and they put the whole hour on a CD. And <laughs> I was super nervous doing that little show. And uh, my bass player separated that hour into five uh, into I guess there were like 10 or 12 different songs that I did over the course of that hour. And I listened to all those songs. And, you know, I was super nervous. And so they were had all sorts of mistakes. And, you know, lots of places where I off, was off pitch and stuff like that. And I took the f five songs that were the least cringeworthy, <laughs> that made me cringe them the least. And I burned those five songs onto CDs on my computer and slapped a label on them, you know, I made a nicely designed sticker and I stuck them on and I sold them at my local gigs. So I had a little CD that I sold. And then a couple of years later in 2009, I decided to make, a, you know, a, a, go up a little, you know, ramp it up a little bit and make a new CD. And in order to keep myself from going uh, completely crazy with perfectionism, my goal was to make that CD just the next step up, just make it better than the home burned CD that I was selling, which wasn't that hard. <laughs> and in order to avoid any copyright issues, I decided that I was going to use all original songs, but I'd actually only written three songs at the time. So that was going to be a pretty short CD, actually just an EP, whatever they call it, you know, like a sampler, right? An extended play or wasn't even extended. <laughs> but my then boyfriend, who I now refer to as my lousy ex-boyfriend because of what happened later, but that is a completely different story. The guy who lived with me at the time, he wasn't a musician, but rather randomly, he'd, he'd made up an Irish drinking song while he was driving home from his favorite bar in San Francisco one day, he'd sung this song into his answering machine. <laughs> so he had, he had actually written a song, even though he wasn't a musician. And also very randomly, a few years before I met him, he had written lyrics to this other song, weirdly enough, that happened to be about a woman who only dates married men, which might have been a clue as to his general ethical leanings, had I been paying better attention. 
another story, as I said. However, so he had these two songs, and the suggestion came up that I use these two songs to pad out my CD or, you know, EP, whatever it was. And so I did. I took his Irish drinking song, Geary Street, and I made a new melody for it, and I turned it into a jazz ballad. And then I also used this other song, Married Men, and I made a melody to that, and I added them both to my CD. So now I had five songs, and I also did the original version of Geary Street, the Irish drinking song, and I added that at the end of my CDs, and I had six tracks. But when I recorded all of these songs with my band for the CD, Geary Street, this jazz ballad, has kind of some some odd intervals, the, the distances between the notes. They're, they're kind of hard. <laughs> I wrote a kind of complicated melody, and I didn't have that new melody kind of woven deeply enough into my bones, because it was a brand new song that I'd made up. And when we recorded it, we recorded it, we didn't have isolation chambers to record it. And we only had time for like two takes of each song when we recorded the album. So that I just, I didn't have that melody solid. And I was just really, really unhappy with that track. And when I listened to it after, you know, we recorded it, and then I took it to this guy to have it mastered, mixed and mastered. And I had this finished product. And I remember driving to my voice teacher's house for my weekly lesson, and handing her that freshly mastered CD, finished product, and just bursting into tears devastated, devastated, because I was convinced I could not release it. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I was convinced that I was going to have to pay hundreds of dollars that I did not have to gather the band back together. We were going to have to find another date to get everybody back together and re-record that song and then pay more money to get it remastered because I just could not release it the way it was. Every vocal wobble just screamed at me. It was humiliating. The shame was excruciating. But Margot, my voice teacher, she said, hang on, just have a seat. Just let me listen to it. And the pain of just those four minutes or however long the song is of watching as Marco listened to the song and listening to it again. It was so painful. She just listened to the entire song. Didn't look at, look at me while she listened. She just listened to it. And then after she listened to the entire song, she looked at me and she said, Melissa, you just need to go get some sleep. <laughs> She's like, it's fine. What's wrong with it? <laughs> and I got to tell you, just over a month ago, back on Saturday, June 24th, I think that's the right date, June 24th, 8 a.m., I was driving up the mountain to Jazz Camp West, and I popped in my CD, Online Dating Blues, 
pop that into my player in my car to try and get myself in the mood for camp, which obviously did not work. We all know if you listened to episode 120, which tells the sad story, I did not get in the mood. I was horribly depressed. But anyway, Geary Street came on. That song that made me burst into tears when I hand that exact track, that that's the track that made me burst into tears eight years ago. And you know what? I Yes, I can still hear the wobbles. I can still hear the insecurities in my voice. And here's the thing. Now I can also hear what Margot heard. Back then, almost eight years ago, right after I recorded it, all those cracks and wobbles in my voice where I didn't hit the intervals smack on, all of those cracks and wobbles sounded like the Grand Canyon to me because I was in the heat of all those feelings. Oh my God, it was excruciating. But now with some, you know, perspective of time. (laughs) Now I realize those aren't the Grand Canyon. They're more like maybe sidewalk cracks, you know, and really someone without any of the context that I have, they might just assume that there's texture that's supposed to be there. They probably wouldn't even hear them, right? And I share this story with you right now Because when you can pinpoint your own versions of this story, it can really help you when you're in the heat of those kinds of feelings the next time. Now, it's not going to take those feelings away. Yeah, I'm really sorry, but the feelings are still going to wash over you. You're still going to feel the heat of that shame and humiliation and embarrassment and pain. It's still going to, the feelings are still going to be there. But it can help you to remember that the feelings are not going to last forever. And it's likely, it will help you remember that it's likely that they're not entirely connected to reality. So when I was having my meltdown at jazz camp, after my performance train wreck, I had just listened to Curie Street on my car CD player. And I kept reminding myself of that. I kept reminding myself of Geary Street. And it was so serendipitous that I had just listened to it on the drive up. I mean, I had been this close to re-recording that song and canceling my entire CD launch because I was so convinced that that track, that one track was so god-awful that I could not release it. And yet now when I listen to it, I just think, yeah, it's not perfect. But you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was. And in fact, it's actually pretty good. And even though I can hear all the imperfections, I still hear all the imperfections. I can hear the good in it too. And other people really like it. And okay, I have not yet seen the recording of my performance at this year's camp. But I imagine that it's probably pretty similar. I do know that a number of people at camp 
had no idea that I had even messed up. <laughs> Which is very typical for live performance, by the way. <laughs> Most people don't even notice when you mess up. <laughs> even though I sang uh, number nine when I was supposed to sing, I, I sang the number nine when I was supposed to sing the number 10 and thing, I did things like that. Most people probably didn't even notice that because they didn't know what I was supposed to be singing. I knew what I was supposed to be singing, but they didn't know what I was supposed to be singing. <laughs> I could tell when my fingers froze and I didn't play chords when I was supposed to be playing chords or I played the wrong chords. Most people probably didn't notice. I will probably cringe when I do watch the recording, when I finally get it, get the thumb drive in the mail and I or CD or whatever, DVD, and I finally get to see it, it will probably make me cringe. And I suspect that I will notice really embarrassing things that I have forgotten that I did. But you know what? Lightning did not strike. I did not die. <laughs> and it probably wasn't as bad as my gremlins convinced me it was in the moment. And that is really the point. So think about those moments in your own life, those Geary Street moments for you, when those when things seemed utterly disastrous in the moment. But later, you realize that, yeah, they really weren't. And take note of those moments, file them away mentally, or take notes and put them in an Evernote or a paper file or whatever works for you. File them away way where you can access, access them the next time you have a disaster, what feels like a disaster in the moment, so you can remind yourself that, yeah, it probably really isn't a disaster probably really isn't as disastrous as it feels right in this moment. Because remember, in the heat of a Geary Street moment, what feels like the Grand Canyon is probably really just a sidewalk crack, or maybe even some really interesting texture. And that is today's episode. And now it's time for something cool. Today's something cool is the Morpher Folding Bike Helmet. This is something that I first saw on an Indiegogo campaign. And I have a link in the show notes at livecreativenow.com slash 121, because this is episode 121. Uh, I have a link to that Indiegogo campaign page. And I also have a link to the Morpher website at livecreativenow.com slash 121. So the Morpher is a folding bicycle helmet. Now, a lot of people have invented various different kinds of folding bicycle helmets, this one seems like the most, I don't know, the best one that I've seen so far. Why would you want a folding bicycle helmet? Well, if you bike to work or you want to, I don't know, fly across the ocean on a bike tour or something like that, and you don't 
want to pack your bike helmet. Bike helmets are like bulky and they're kind of hard to carry around with you because they just take a lot of space. And if you don't carry it with you, then you're not likely to actually wear it. And if you don't wear your bike helmet, then if you get in an accident, you're likely to die. (laughs) So this really clever guy, uh, and I'm going to forget his name, the guy who invented the morpher, uh, Jeff Wolf, W-O-O-L-F, that's his name, really clever guy in the UK, in London, had a really, really bad bike accident. And he survived. But he realized that uh, this this was a problem. Getting people to wear bike helmets was a big issue. So he set about figuring out how to create a folding bike helmet. And when my husband and I bought folding bikes, we thought, you know, hey, it would be cool to get folding bike helmets should we ever decide we want to travel with our folding bikes. So we um, we bought a, a pair of these Morpher folding bike helmets, and they, they fold pretty darn flat. So you could slip them in a briefcase or a backpack, super easy to carry, always ready to pop open when they're needed. And the best thing is they are rated really highly in all of the, you know, the, all of the, whatever the, the, the governing bodies that rate bicycle helmets, rate them very highly in the, in the, in Europe and Australia and uh, the US as well. So check them out. Morpher folding bike helmet. And that is this week's something cool. That's it. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you found this podcast helpful, if you got some value out of it, share it with a friend. And I would be super grateful if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Seriously, those uh, reviews over on iTunes make a really big difference because that's how other people find the show. And you would be doing not just me a favor, but you'd be helping other people and helping change the world by leaving a review over on iTunes. Here's what Hobby Z wrote. Following Melissa is a game changer, she wrote. After following Melissa for a good many years, I've learned, enjoyed, and expanded from her email newsletters, read her book, The Creative Sandbox Way, and find her posts in my social media feeds inspiring and filled with ideas. Playful, purposeful, and practical are not enough to describe the delightful podcast she shares. Highly recommend that you follow, subscribe, and bookmark the places she shows up, which are everywhere, and have some creative fun. Thank you, Javi Z. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can leave a review too, and... If you leave a review on iTunes and you shoot me an email to let me know that you've left a review and send that review over to me, uh, that is how you you can apply to be considered for a listener spotlight. Every so often, I feature people on the podcast, and I just have a fun conversation with uh, with a listener and record it, and um, yeah get to shine a little spotlight on you. That's how you apply is just by leaving a review and let me know how listening to the podcast has made a difference in your life. 
that's how you apply. All right, so that is it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me. And as always, go get creating. Subscribe at livecreativenow.com.